It's good to be with you again. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. And uh, really excited to be with you guys. We're going to continue today in our uh, study of the book of Acts. Uh, we're kind of creeping through it um, as a new church plant. I mean, we've met like, I think this is our eighth or ninth gathering. So we're like really green, I think is what they would call that. Uh, we have, uh, we prayed through before even launching our core gatherings. Um, you know, what should we teach through? What should we focus on? What should we look at so that we can uh, learn best how to, to be a church that is gospel-centered and exalts Christ properly and is transformational and all those little things and stuff. So the book of Acts made sense, right? Uh, someone once said that if you, you know, if you just neglect history, you're doomed to repeat the bad aspects of it. And so uh, we actually have in a historical account of the church when it began, its incarnation and what the Lord did through it, uh, in it and through it in the first century. And so why not look to the book of Acts? And it's been really, really awesome. Uh, today we're on part five uh, of our series. And uh, the series we actually called You Will Be My Witnesses. That's taken from chapter one, verse eight. And uh, today I, I've entitled the message, uh, The Judas uh, Situation. Uh, we're going to be looking at him and uh, some of the things that he did, because that's where the Holy Spirit has led us to in the text. We're going to be focusing on chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, and uh, you might want to get your pencils or pens and, and note sheets ready there, because uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and uh, you're going to want to take some notes and stuff. I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then I'll pray once more, and then we'll begin to examine it. Amen? Good? Good to go? We got an alert ready, church, ready to hear from Jesus? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. One person back there has got pom-poms. Pom-poms on Palm Sunday. All right, let's read the text. We're looking at one, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Word of God says, In those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. And verse 18, we've got a little parentheses here. Now this man acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And, yeah. <laughs> Pepto. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. That is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Father, I pray now again, God, uh, that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to the gospel, open our hearts and minds to the truth of Scripture, to this passage in particular. God, I pray that um, we would be more than hearers of the word today, but that we would be doers of the word, as James said. It is so highly important that we not only listen, but that we apply. 
And so may we do that today. May we receive your word uh, with open hearts, open minds, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. And we pray, God, that you would speak to each one of us together and as individuals. May you receive the glory, too, for this teaching. That is the goal. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's examine the text together. We're just going to kind of work through it, massage it a little bit, work through each line. Buckle your seatbelt, let's do it. Let's focus in on verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said... We'll stop right there. The Apostle Peter was Jesus' closest student, as well as his chosen leader to the rest of the disciples. Uh, We would say that he was his right-hand man, I guess is what we would call it. Now, prior to the ascension of Christ, which has happened in the narrative here just recently, maybe even that same day or maybe the day before or the day before that, but we're talking within hours here. Uh, Prior to the ascension, uh, the Lord had commissioned Peter uh, to do something very, very important. In John chapter 21, verse 17, Jesus told Peter to what? To feed my sheep. This was a commission uh, to train others in the gospel through the living word of God, more particularly the remaining disciples. Now, our passage shows us the very first instance where Peter exercised his role as a leader teacher uh, to these people, to this group of men and the rest of these people after the ascension, which is awesome. It says that Peter stood up, is what the text says, chapter 115. In this culture, uh, it was customary for uh, the teachers, uh, the rabbis, Uh, the pastors, for lack of better words, to stand up as they were addressing uh, their audience, their listeners, their hearers. And so what Peter has done is he is now obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fulfilling his commission uh, right after Jesus ascends up into heaven. And he's he's fulfilling uh, that commission by taking the lead, by standing before the church as it's gathered in the upper room, For the first time, really, here in some ways. I mean, they haven't come together like this before. They're now waiting for the day of Pentecost. They're together in this upper room, and I call them the church of the upper room because that's really what they were, 120 people. Peter stands up and and takes his role. He he begins to lead. He begins to teach them. Now, Luke wrote that there were 120 people present, and uh, this is really bizarre Uh, 120 people, that's not what's bizarre, but what's bizarre about it is that for centuries and centuries, people have criticized Jesus for not being a very effective uh, leader, because what they do is they look at the church being only 120 people right after he goes off into heaven, and they say, look, he wasn't such a great preacher or this whatever it is that he proclaimed to be. His church was only 120 people, Uh, you know. Right after he ascended, the church was very small. If he came and he was so talented and gifted and did all these miracles and preached the gospel and did all this stuff for three and a half years, then why was the church so small? 
And, and the thing that's really tragic about that criticism is that it, it comes primarily from pastors in the church, or at least so-called pastors of the church. And uh, I just find it bizarre, and I felt like I needed to comment on this, and maybe you're familiar with those criticisms that Jesus just wasn't as good a leader as he should have been or whatever, and he left behind a really, really small church. Well, why do we criticize him when we look at the church now and it's millions and millions of people? But apparently Jesus wasn't that great of a teacher and all that because his church was small. Because, you know, in this day and age, that's how we judge a church, right? By its size, not by its fruit, but by how large it is. Uh, Every week, because we've just planted this church, every week I have people ask me about our church, and the first thing they ask is, how many people do you have coming? And I usually think, you're an idiot, I don't say that, I think it, but I usually think, okay, this person obviously is measuring according to the world standards on what makes a church good and right and holy, whatever it is, you know, then I tell them it's, it's about a thousand people, you know. <laughs> Minus about 960, you know. Uh, but it, it, that's, that's what we do in the church, man. You go to a conference, and I've been a pastor for a while, and you go to conferences, and the first thing people ask is, what's your name, Phil? How many people you got coming to your ministry? You know, it's just a spectacular thing. Now, one of the biggest critics of Jesus uh, over the size of his church at this, at this point uh, was a guy named uh, Joseph Smith. Who is he? founder of Mormonism, and uh, I, I don't consider him to be a brother in Christ whatsoever, but this guy was so bold as to say publicly in some part, in you know, some city or town in Illinois, he actually came out and publicly addressed people and said that no one in all of history has grown the church or kept it unified like him, not even Jesus Christ. Those were his words. Shortly after he made that proclamation, he was arrested for violating state law. He was put into jail, and then his brother, Alvin, came and visited him and said, there's a mob that's coming for your head. And so Alvin handed him a six-shooter, and they both stood, one on one side of the cell, the other on the other, or maybe they were in there together. I'm not sure exactly how it played out, but they stood in there and waited for this mob. And as this mob came to lynch them, they opened fire, killing a bunch of townspeople. And then they ran out of bullets, and they themselves were killed. And Mormons call them martyrs. You see, Joseph Smith was a critic of Jesus Christ because his church was small, and Jesus couldn't keep it unified, and look at all these denominations and all this stuff, and blah, 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 blah. Now, even in the last couple of years, there's been some critics, uh, I'd say within the church. Obviously, we don't consider Joseph Smith to be in the church, but there's been some critics in the church that have criticized Jesus uh, for this very thing that we're reading here, uh, and, and they belong to what's called the emergent movement. You know, Jesus just... Uh, you know, he didn't do so well, and there's pastors today who have done uh, an exemplary job of growing churches and, and, and building churches and all that. And, and I just want to submit this to you. Any person who thinks and believes that they are a better leader than Jesus Christ or that it's them that is growing churches, that it's them and what they're doing and their skills and their abilities and all that, anyone who believes they're a better leader than Jesus or that he wasn't effective or that they're better in any way, shape, or form, they're an antichrist. 
They do not belong to Jesus Christ. They actually consider Jesus to be in competition with their ministry, is what they do. No one, no one has ever, ever, ever impacted this world in all of history like Jesus. We've got holidays after him. There's been millions, probably, I don't know, millions, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of songs written about him. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. We actually have a time shift. We have the, the A.D. and the B.C., and it's all based on his birth and his death. I mean, really? Nobody has impacted the world as Jesus Christ. Whether you believe in him or not, that's just a reality. And I, I don't say this to discipline you people, because I, I think that you're tracking with me here. But it's amazing what some people come up with based on some scriptures. And Jesus just, yeah, he was good. But look at what these other saints did after him. And, and look at the acts of the apostles. And wow, really? Let's take a look at uh, 16 and 17. We have Peter, the leader teacher standing before the church of the upper room, ready to feed the sheep. And he said, what, 16 and 17? He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, first thing that comes to mind for me here is that it would appear that some of the disciples that were present in this room uh, may have been discussing the whole Judas situation. Uh, they, they, there, there must have been something going on here to spark Peter to respond to them in this way. And, and maybe that's not true at all. Maybe just Peter stood up and felt you know, led by the Holy Spirit without you know, assessing the situation that he needed to address this whole Judas thing. But it, it seems, with what he says and how he goes on through this whole sort of testimony, it seems and it appears that these people were maybe talking about it or maybe they were uh, uncertain or confused uh, or maybe they were speculating. And, 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 and I doubt very seriously that, that this group uh, wasn't familiar with the whole situation. For crying out loud, 43 days had passed since Judas betrayed Jesus, so it's unlikely that there were any there that, that's what I'm talking about, little miss. Right, she's like, nah, they knew it, see? I, I just doubt that after 43 days, you know, somebody's in the upper room up there, and this is like the church, right, the first church, and they're going, who's Judas? Really? Man, you are dense, you know? No, they had an idea of what happened. They just couldn't put it all together. And, and, and it might very well be that because this is kind of a gathering here where we have the 11 apostles, it could be that some people are kind of wondering why Judas wasn't there. Now they get it, he betrayed him and all that. And, 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 but you know, now there's this absence, there's this man who's missing who had been with these guys for three, three and a half years. I mean, we don't know what's playing out, but... I suspect that maybe some of them were saying, oh, that rotten, you know, rat Judas, or it's really tragic and sad what happened with him. Can you believe it? It's terrible. He should be here. That's the kind of stuff we do, right? 
somebody just blows it, as, you know, and, 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 and we've never seen anyone blow it quite like this. I suppose we have. I've seen people turn their back on Christ. But, you know, we just start to wonder and, and to speculate and to converse about all the ins and outs of what they did, and we have no idea as to why they did what they did or anything. But I think that's what's going on here. And, and so in order to bring, I think, some clarity and maybe even some closure to the matter, Peter steps up, probably listening. He's very in tune to what's happening. He's listening. He, he's hearing the little mumblings. He's watching people. He knows that clarity needs to be brought. What does he do? He stands up and he begins to address the group on the Judas situation, on the Judas matter. And, and what he does is he begins. This is so, so amazing. This is why we have to study the Word of God carefully, because we just kind of fly through it and we miss stuff. But what he actually does is he aims to give those listeners, those hearers, a shot of the bigger picture. Okay? It's really easy when we experience difficult situations in life or tragedy and all that to just kind of get tunnel vision and to focus on that. And meanwhile, we miss the bigger picture. Uh, sometimes, uh, some, some scholars would call it, when it's as pertaining to God, the global picture. You know, we just tend to think that God's just ministering to me and operating to me and, he, and, and it's all about me and, and my faith and my little family and my this and all that and he doesn't have a global plan because it's all about the bakers. Or, you know, this tragedy strikes us in such a way that we can't get our eyes on anything else and we're just stuck in this little vortex and vacuum. And so I think Peter suspects that here. And so he aims to give them a bigger picture, a glimpse of what really is what has really happened and what has played out. And he addresses the group as brothers. Now, last week or the week before, we learned that there were some, some gals in that group too. So that's, maybe there were some manly chicks in there. I, I don't know what's going on. You know, that's weird. But no, he just says brothers. And, 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 and the word that he uses for brothers is Adelphoi, which is, uh, you know, we have the city of Philadelphia, you've got the city of brotherly love, Adelphus, that's brotherly love. And so he uses Adelphoi, he addresses this group as basically brothers in Christ, as brothers of the gospel, as brothers of the blood of the lamb is what Adelphoi means. And so he addresses them very personally here before he even gets anywhere. And then he addresses them that way and then he says the scripture had to be fulfilled. Here's his plug to get their eyes off the little situation that's playing out, the little temporal part of it, and he's trying to lead them to a larger part here. He's leading them away from what I call the temporality of the moment towards the sovereignty of God. He says the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, Isaiah did something very similar to this in Isaiah 6, okay? King Uzziah had died, and this was a beloved king. This was a righteous king. He was a pretty good king for Israel. There weren't a whole lot of them that were all that great. Some of them were complete yahoos. This guy was a good king, and he died. And so what did people start to do? Oh, what are we going to do? We had a great king. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? So the people start to have anxieties. They start to panic. They, they, they start to wonder about the future, and they've lost this beloved king. And, and so often we do that when we lose someone or we get a new president, right? We're like, oh, gosh, what's going to happen, right? And it, all of them are the same, really, in my book. It always is the same junk, just repeat, repeated. But that's what's happening in, 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 in Jerusalem. And so what does Isaiah do? God gives him a vision of what? God sitting on his throne 
in all his majesty and in his glory, ruling and reigning. And so what does Isaiah do? He proclaims to the people, yeah, we lost our El Presidente, but we have a God who's sovereign and who's ruling and who's reigning. So don't fear. We have a God who's in control, is what Isaiah does. And I think in a cool way, Peter is saying the scripture had to be fulfilled, a.k.a. it's bigger than just the little Judas thing. It's bigger than, yeah, he betrayed Jesus and, and sold him out, and Jesus went to the cross. And it's, 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 There's just kind of a, 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 a creation-sized thing happening here. God's behind it is essentially what he's kind of saying. He's steering them towards the sovereignty of God. And right now people would be going, oh, because there may have been some people there that, that weren't familiar with like Old Testament prophecy and those things, and, and they, just, they just didn't know. And so he's steering them towards that. He, like Isaiah, he's pointing them, these disciples, towards God and ultimately his plan. He says the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Great, 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 great text here. Now, the text also says, uh, we, we, we actually get... Basically what Peter has said is, so the whole Judas thing was a part of God's plan. That's what he says, why the scriptures had to be fulfilled. That's exactly what he meant. And then he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit had spoken about Judas. Notice how he said, not the betrayer, not some guy that would screw up, not whatever. He literally says that the Holy Spirit had spoken about who? About Judas. By name he calls him. There's specificity here. The, the Holy Spirit had spoken about not just a betrayer in the Old Testament, but it was literally linked and tied to Judas. And so Peter reminds them, hey, the Holy Spirit had said something through King David about Judas. And so now they're going, whoa, specific Judas? Okay. They're tripping now. They're like, wow. Now he also reminds his listeners that Judas was the one that led the arresting party to Jesus while at the Garden of Gethsemane. Why he reminds them of that, I don't know. He just includes that. I think most of those people would have known that, and maybe there was some confusion to that too. But he says that was the guy that brought those temple guards and those Romans with clubs and candles and in, what do they call those, togas, whatever. Those are the guys that came into the garden. He's the one that led them. He's the one that went up and and betrayed him with a kiss. That's kind of what he's putting here. He's laying it out. He kind of says that. And then he reminds them of how Judas was one of the 12 and how he was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, what does he mean by allotted his share in the ministry? It Simply put, it means that Judas had been given similar opportunities, blessings, and responsibilities uh, to, uh, as the other disciples had been given. He, he was included in the ministry and shared in some of the same things. Not all the same things, because Judas didn't get taken up to see the transfiguration, right? Only Peter, James, and John went with Jesus to do that. So he didn't get all of the bennies and blessings, but he pretty much was personally discipled by Jesus. And you might think, well, no, he wasn't, because I don't ever remember Jesus really interacting with him in the gospel. Yeah, he did. He corrected him a few times and, and stuff like that. So he was discipled, not just in a group of 12, but personally by Jesus at times. I mean, for crying out loud, he listened to all the sermons that Jesus preached. Let me rewind that. No, he didn't listen to them. He was present, right? He was there when Jesus preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. You guys think I go long? (laughs) Ha ha. 
I think that thing went for a couple days. I don't know. Can you imagine? He was there. He listened to that. He had a front row seat when Jesus performed, according to the end of John, countless miracles. So many miracles. He did so many things that there aren't enough books in the whole world to hold them. I think he's using a little hyperbole, but for the most part, you know, Jesus did a lot of stuff. And, and Judas was there to watch the stuff. I mean, he was there when the storm got calmed. He was there when Tabitha, you know, a.k.a. Dorcas. I'd never name my kid Dorcas. That's, they're not going to make it through high school. But, <laughs> hey, Dorcas, you know, right? I mean, he was there when, when, and when Jesus raised that, uh, you know, that gal. And she was a great gal in the scripture. I mean, he, he was there. He watched what happened, healing the lame, healing lepers, producing you know, a smorgie out of, you know, a couple loaves and some fish or whatever. I mean, for 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, twice. I mean, he was there. He watched all these things play out. He, he ate the food that Jesus provided, right? He had, how many meals do you eat in three years or so? Some of us eat multiple more meals than I do. I mean, I eat all day long pretty much. I'd fit right into Jewish culture. I never have to leave the dinner table. I just keep sitting there and eating. I'm, I'm like a goldfish, you know. You put it in front of me, yeah, I'm going to put it away. And I'm going to get mad when my shirts don't fit, but then I just buy larger sizes. I mean, he ate the meals, right? He ate the meals. Man, these guys, can you imagine these meals that they ate together? A little crackling fire, a little pita, extreme pita, right? Right there, a little falafel. It just the, the flickering of light and the intimacy that these guys had together. All these me- eating a meal back then was a huge thing, man. I mean, to us now, it's just get food in your body so we could go from point A to point B. You know, but in that culture, wow, a meal was like acceptance, welcoming, four hours long. He got to eat those meals. He he was at the Last Supper. He had his feet washed. He bunked near Jesus and the others. Right? They all kind of camped out. I mean, I, I get it. Jesus said they didn't, he didn't have a place to rest his head. Foxes have holes. Uh, but they still camped out all the time and slept in some homes in Capernaum and in Jerusalem. And I mean, he was there. He was always there. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they had like Jewish bunk beds, you know, and, you know, and I, I don't know how they, I doubt it, but, but he, he slept around them. He was around them all the time. And Judas traveled throughout Palestine with them. I mean, they traveled all over. You know, we've got automobiles now. These guys did a lot of walking or a lot of donkey back. I just, yeah, I'm good. Right? I mean, they, they traveled all over. They probably covered hundreds of miles by foot. Jesus had a, a, a reasonably large territory. He went all the way up to Sychar and in some of those Greek provinces up there. I mean, they went all over the place. And this guy was right there with them all the time. Judas was even given a temporary anointing of the Holy Spirit so that he could go out with the other disciples to preach the gospel and to work miracles in and around Capernaum. Remember when they sent him out, Jesus sent him out two by two? Judas was there. And he went out and not even believing the gospel is out, I guess, proclaiming it. There's a lot of people in the church that don't believe the gospel that are proclaiming it. So it's feasible. (laughs) Tragic, but feasible. But he's out there proclaiming it, and, and even was gifted to perform miracles? That's, that's incredible to me. Bottom line is Judas was allotted his share just as the others had been. 
He was invited. He was uh, chosen to be a part of it. And he was a partaker just as the others were. He did a lot of stuff. In fact, he was even made the treasurer. You got to be, well, in this day and age, you don't have to be responsible to be a treasurer. But logically speaking, it makes sense that you trust the person that's handling the money, right? And this guy carried the money. He handled the offerings. He dealt with the cash, the shekels, the minas, the denarii. Man, I mean, this guy. Now, in no way whatsoever does Peter say or infer that Judas shared in the salvation that the other disciples enjoyed. Okay? Allotted his share does not mean he believed. It does not mean. And there's great controversy about that. And there has been over the centuries. That he was a believer. Look, he felt bad when he did what he did, so he went and killed himself. That proves that he had remorse and that he was a real believer. Are you kidding me? That's what you believe. He was not a partaker in the gift of salvation by any means. And Peter is not inferring that, even though some have tried to make it sound like he is. He is not. Judas was not saved. Jesus ex- expressed that fact in a few places, but more particular in John six sixty four, Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. See, Judas was never a believer. Judas was placed, and this would be hard to swallow for some of you, Judas was placed among the apostles because it was essential for him to betray Jesus. God did not force Judas into that betrayal against his will. Jesus even said of Judas that it would have been better for him if he had never been born because of what? The choice he made. Matthew 26, 24 and Luke twenty two twenty two. Instead, God used Judas's evil intent to accomplish his own predetermined purposes, Acts 2.23. The whole Judas scenario proves, literally proves, that God uses all things to achieve his purposes in creation. All things. We, we have gotten ourselves to the point in saying that God has nothing to do, literally, with evil, has nothing to do with people who are evil, has nothing to do with any of that. He is so disconnected from all of it that he doesn't even utilize for his own purposes those who do not belong to him through faith. And that's a lie. Everything exists for him. Even fallen sinners who never repent serve his purposes. If we are to say that God is sovereign, then that is an all-inclusive statement. That he is over the wicked just as he is over the saved. That he uses all things, all people, for his predetermined purposes. And Judas was used according to God's predetermined purpose. And God never had to whisper in his ear, you'll never believe and never force him to never believe because guess what? In our natural state, we will not believe. We reject Christ and the things of God. Judas was already fixed in that to a degree. We can see how God uses the evil intent, the wickedness, 
the disbelief, the rejection of Judas to fulfill his predetermined purposes. And what happens if he does not use Judas? Jesus is never arrested. Jesus is never falsely tried. Jesus does not go to a cross. No one gets saved. We're all bound for hell. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's what happens. Oh, he could have used somebody else. Well, yeah. But he chose to use Judas and his wickedness and his evil intent, didn't he? As sad as the Judas thing is, as tragic as it is, because it is. And let me tell you right now, I'm one of those guys that, that feels for him as, a, as an individual. I remember when Osama bin Laden was, was killed by the Navy SEALs. Remember that? On Facebook, all the Christians were just praising God and going crazy over it. And it, it made me mad. It made me mad that we are so desensitized to the reality that, yes, yes, he's wicked. Yes, he's wrong. Yes, justice needs to be served. But he's still a lost soul who did horrendous things to people and who is now paying for all of eternity his choice and decisions and for what he did. I remember that, and I got slack for that. They were like, you know what? No, this is a great moment. That son of a gun needed to go and whatever. And these are Christians. I'm like, hey, let's not forget here that he was outside of Christ. Yeah, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the guy, okay? I'm not a, I'm not a sociopath here. I, I, I don't really feel for him. In fact, I'm very angry at what he did, and I'm glad justice has been served. But don't get too celebratory here. Because in a way, you begin to abuse the grace that's been shown to you. Because what I would have liked to have seen was him, yeah, justice served, but I'd like to have seen him get saved. For crying out loud, if you read the papers, you see that Jeffrey Donner, if that's even possible, got saved in the last moments of his life before he was beaten to death. I'm glad for that. Yeah, he did horrible things. But we so often forget how horrendous and horrible hell is in comparison to the worst things that we can see on earth. It's immeasurable compared to what we experience here. And some would say, no, that's not true. You can have hell on earth. No, you can't. The, the, the genocide and those things are horrible, yes, but hell is at a whole different level, friends. You don't die during that. You suffer in it forever, for all eternity. Oh, it's a terrible, terrible thing. But I'm glad that God laid things out in such a way and, and that he utilizes uh, people who have evil and wicked intent, that he utilizes them for, yeah, his glory, but to fulfill his purposes, which ultimately benefit his kingdom and those who belong to him. He really does that. What an amazing thing. Now, we don't relish in that. Get our pom-poms out. It's Palm Sunday. Woohoo! He uses all the wicked sinners for us. Oh, if that's you... Hit the door. But at the same time, he, nothing's outside of his control. All of it belongs to him. He uses all of it. The good, I always say it, the good, the bad, and the nasty. Sin never comes through his own personal hands. It doesn't have to. But he utilizes sinful people to achieve his purposes. Amazing thing. And our God is mighty in his sovereignty, isn't he? Isn't it? This isn't supposed to cause us to go, oh, man, this is terrible and whatever. It's supposed to make us feel and believe that, wow, we have a God who really is in control, right? Because when we deal with life situations, we 
feel like there is no control or that he doesn't care or that he's disconnected. And the reality is, is that he uses all things for the greater good of those who love him, even our tragedies. So what do we do? We rejoice in the fact that he's sovereign and in control. That's what we do. Praise you, Father, that you're in control of this big mess. Because this whole planet's a bloody mess. It really is. In spite of God's sovereignty, and in, 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 in light of this whole Judas situation, I, I do have to say that Judas does, in so many ways, represent the greatest example of wasted opportunity in all of history. I mean, just from a human perspective, I get it. God used him to fulfill his purposes. The scriptures foretold that. I get it. But at the same time, from a human perspective, dude, really? You squandered the great... You got to walk with Jesus and to talk with Jesus in the garden. Oh, remember that song? He walks with me and he talks. I can't stand it. He got to do all these things with Jesus to eat with them. And, and he heard the gospel over and over and over and saw the miracles. And Jesus chose only 12 men. And at the time that he chose these men, there were a lot of people following Jesus. He was like Bono. You know, people were just like, Dude, this guy's got it going on. There were a lot of people following. He doesn't go, you know, eh, whatever. He prays all night. He picks 12 guys. Only 12. And Judas was one of them. I mean, he just, (laughs) he had the same convincing, overwhelming opportunity to come to faith as the other 11 did, didn't he? I mean, he was always there, and Jesus was talking about the kingdom and take up your cross and all these things. And I mean, he, just, he was just afforded every blessing in Christ, was he not? And yet his motives for following Jesus were never anything but selfish. He no doubt shared the common Jewish hope that Messiah would deliver the nation from the yoke of the hated Romans. And yet, when it became obvious that that was not Jesus' plan, because remember, that's what the Jews wanted in that day and age. They wanted a Messiah, no doubt, but a Messiah who would come and wipe out the Romans and take out the Herodians and make all their enemies their footstool and set up his kingdom right there forever and you know, it'd be this glorious thing. That's what they were waiting for. And in all honesty, the Scripture teaches that that's going to happen. It just wasn't going to happen at stage one. That's what they wanted. But when it became obvious to people like Judas that, wait a minute, you're not going to smash the Romans, you're not going to crush them, you're not going to do these things, all of a sudden it became sort of a hopeless lost cause for Judas. You know, he wanted Jesus to set up his kingdom so that he could share in the glory and in the power and in the wealth. And so what did he do when he realized that that's not at all what Jesus is going to do? What did he do? In an effort to salvage something out of it, he goes off and sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. That's what he did. That was his choice. Oh, you're not going to set up the kingdom now? And, and I'm not going to get paid? I'm not going to get mimes? I'm not going to get paid? No. That's not at all what I've come to do. Oh, well then, guess what? I've got to get mimes. I'll just sell you out. That's what he chose to do. He betrayed the incarnate Son of God to the authorities for a paltry sum in order to gain some form of compensation. The greed he evidenced by that act 
was another indicator of his wicked heart. Uh, there had been a, a, a preview of this avarice, of his heart, of his wicked heart, of his selfishness and wanting things to himself after Jesus was anointed with costly perfume by a gal named Mary. Judas indignantly claimed, man, what are you doing? Don't waste the perfume. We could have took that and sold it and gave the money to the poor. But what does the Apostle John say about that? He says, oh, no, 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 hold on a second. There's a little parenthetical statement right after that passage there. He says, no, that's not at all what Judas's intent was. He wanted to sell it and take the money and keep it for himself. You see, he wanted wealth and power. He wanted what he wanted, not what the Messiah wanted. And then driven by disappointment and greed, this most tragic of all men squandered a priceless privilege, betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and essentially damned his soul to hell. In verse 18, Luke added a parenthetical statement for Theophilus, as we're back to our text, for Theophilus's benefit. Remember, Theophilus is this Greek Roman dignitary or, or whoever he was. He is the man that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke to as well as the book of Acts to this individual. And so he kind of adds in in verse 18 this parenthetical statement. You can see it right there in your Bibles, the parentheses. And what does he do? He describes what happened to Judas so that Theophilus will better understand the entirety of the situation. Luke paints a reasonably gruesome picture in the text. And when I read the text, some of you were going, ew, his bowels spilled out. And that's just like Freddy Krueger action going on there. That's nasty. But he does this to benefit Theophilus. So Theophilus can understand, all right, look, it was foretold. And we're going to get back to that foretelling later at the end of our section in verse 20. He says it was foretold. And then this is what became of this individual, Theophilus. This is what happened to him. Let's look at 18 and 19 together. Parentheses, now this man, Judas, is who he's speaking about, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Gross. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alkaldama. I think it's Alkaldama. That is field of blood. Now, this particular passage has been used. Uh, again, we, we've seen assaults on the first section, our first verse that we read about the church being small and people criticizing Jesus for that. This section right here, this passage has been, uh, uh, critics have used it as artillery too, uh, to prove that the Bible has inconsistencies in it or you know, that it's contradictory. And uh, the difficulties arise at the beginning of Luke's statement, and that is when he says, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Um, this is an impossibility uh, because Matthew 27.3 says that Judas returned the 30 pieces of silver to those who paid him to betray Jesus, right? So how, if he returned the money, how could he go and buy a field? And so the skeptic takes that and goes, look, we've got him. We've got all the Christians nailed, all two billion of them. Right there. The answer um, is that he really couldn't buy the field himself at all in the literal sense. Now, here's how it went down, and you need to pay attention because I'm going to help to illustrate so that you can understand. Judas, no doubt, did betray 
Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But after the arrest, trial, and and some of the beatings, he realized that he had betrayed an innocent man. Consumed with guilt, he devised a plan to return the money to the religious leaders so that his conscience could be cleared. And so he went to the religious leaders and gave back the money bag, and they took it. They took the money. After the crucifixion, the religious leaders wanted to get rid of the money because they believed that it was cursed because it, to them, was blood money. And they were very, very, very superstitious in these days as they are today. Oh, we, we, okay, look, we took the money back, but we can't keep the money because it's got a curse on it because that guy sold Jesus out for it and we've now crucified. We can't keep that money. We've got to get rid of that money. And yet, instead of discarding it, they bought a field, and they named that field the potter's field because the region that was in had a, a clay-like uh, undersoil and, and a lot of pottery came out of there. And so what's happened? He betrayed them. He felt really bad about what he did, not from a repentive side, but you know, just guilt. He tried to alleviate his guilt, so he takes the money back. He gives it to them. They didn't want to keep the money. They're like, oh, man, if we keep this money, we're going to receive its curse. And they were already cursed, but we're going to receive it. And so what do they do? They go off and buy Potter's Field. All these things are found in Scripture. Now, Judas, on the other hand, had not been relieved of his guilt. He could have gave, given back 10 billion pieces of silver, and it wouldn't have changed his guilt. It wouldn't have changed the way he felt. It wouldn't have changed the gnawing sensation that he had in his gut. Wouldn't have changed it one iota. 30 pieces of silver was a large sum of money back then. For crying out loud, these guys bought a field with it. Try to do that in Modesto. You get a a dirt clod. He, He took it back, but guess what? It didn't alleviate his guilt. In fact, his guilt increased over time. And at some point, he went to the potter's field, and while there, he hanged himself. Matthew 27, 5 says so. Now, Luke's account in our passage does not contradict Matthew's account in 27, 5. It actually supplements it in two spectacular ways. And that's what the scripture does. It's always self-proving. And sometimes you need You need the same account from a different place to be able to get the whole sense of what's happening. And so often what we do is we focus on one little area and then we find what we believe is an inconsistency. And if it's the critic who's outside of Christ, what do they do? They take that and shout that from the mountaintops, from the rooftops. Now, here's how it supplements. Here's how Luke's account supplements Matthew's account. Uh, Number one, Judas did not physically buy the potter's field, but it was purchased with his betrayal money, and therefore Luke considered it to be his field. Oh, you didn't buy it, but you did because that money belonged to you because you betrayed Christ and received that money. That blood money is on your head, in your hands. And so, in principle, Luke says that that's his field. He may not have bought it, but it's his field. The second way, now this is really interesting, the tree, and this is what scholars believe, they've evidenced it from the location of this potter's field and from where this place exactly was. But now check this out. Second way, the tree that Judas chose to hang himself from overlooked a cliff. Now, we're talking about up on the Kidron Valley in the region of cliffs. 
A lot of cliffs, a lot of rocky crags, a lot, and the cliffs aren't real tall there because the mountains aren't real tall, but a few hundred feet is pretty tall. Now, it is believed, and even according to church history, there's been murals and stuff painted of this tree on the edge of a cliff. Now, here's what they say happened. It overlooked a cliff, and while he was dangling from the rope on this tree, perched on a cliff, either the rope or a branch broke or has not failed, and he fell and plunged all the way down, and when he hit the ground, that's what happened. When we boil it down, what do we have? We have Judas selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Matthew 26, 15. We have Judas return, returning the money, Matthew 27, 3. We have the religious leaders. They bought the potter's field with the money, Matthew 27, 7. The apostle Luke claimed that the field belonged to Judas in principle because it was purchased with his betrayal money, Acts 1, 18. Judas went to the potter's field and hung himself on a tree that was positioned on the edge of a cliff. The branch, the rope, or the knot failed, and he fell and splattered on the rocks below, Matthew 27, 5, Acts 1, 18. You see, in order to get the whole picture, you have to look at all Scripture, or at least more Scripture than just this passage. So if you're a critic, I'm sorry, you lose. It didn't work. The Bible cannot be proven to have contradictions, not if you look at it in its entirety. And as, a, as an absolute rule of thumb for us, we must know that we must examine all the gospel accounts to get the fullest sense of the gospel. We must look at Matthew, we must look at Mark, we must look at Luke, and we must look at John in order to get the fullest sense and understanding of the gospel. But guess what? We've got to go beyond that. We must look at all of Scripture to get the fullest sense of the gospel. Why? Because this gospel is throughout all of Scripture. We see it everywhere in Genesis. We see it in Genesis 3. We see it there and beyond all the way up into Revelation. We see it everywhere. So as a rule of thumb, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we must make it our goal and task to examine all Scripture, all the time, and never to just localize on one thing. This is why it's so hard to teach through one gospel without going to the others. You have to. I've taught through the gospel of Mark. It took me two and a half years. And I was always in Matthew, and I was always over here, because if I just focused on this, I wouldn't have given my audience, my listeners, the full picture. It may have even generated some error because you have to look at all of it, to some degree at least. And so it's wonderful that the Word of God, uh, the Scriptures are absolutely, there's no contradictions, there's no error, and they're completely unified, completely unified. All 66 books are self-proving of one another and crossing over, and it's amazing. The, the, the Word of God, the Bible, is a miracle. It is a miracle. It's unlike anything that the world has ever seen, and I wish the world would really see it, and I wish Christians would really dive into it, knock the dust off that puppy and get in there. Verse 19 says that the potter's field was purchased essentially with blood money, and, and, and also, because, here's what verse 19 says, that because the potter's field was purchased with blood money and also because the blood of the betrayer was spilt there, that the people in that region called it Akeldama, which is the field of blood. And I think that's in Aramaic. I didn't research it, but I believe it is because that was the common language there. Uh, the people in that region were familiar with this field, and they knew that it had been purchased with blood money, the betrayal money, and they knew that the blood of the betrayer had been spilled there. And so what did they call it? The field of blood. That's what he says in verse 19. Now, before we move to 20... I'd like to spend a moment on the subject of suicide. Uh, 
for the most part, it's because we've just seen a horrific example of it in our, in our text. Uh, some religions uh, teach that suicide is the unpardonable sin. Catholicism does. Uh, we can't find anything in Scripture that, that says that we, we see that the re, you know, willful rejection of Jesus is the unpardonable sin unto death. Man, you can't be saved once you die. We see that. We don't see suicide as being that, so I don't know how that people come up with, with that. In, in fact, uh, I, there was an Acts 29. We're an Acts 29 church. There was an Acts 29 pastor who killed himself several years ago. It's one of the great, great, I mean, it's a great tragedy anytime someone takes their, their life. Um, and this man had screwed up with money and screwed up in his family and stuff, and he thought that the only way out of all of it was to, was to take his life. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an unbelievable tragedy. Uh, but the man loved Jesus. Uh, the man was caught up in a, a moment of, of demonic action where he lost sight of things. I would not go on to say that this man was not saved. I think that a, a Christian can take their physical life and still enter through the gates of heaven. I, why a Christian would do such a thing in that the Messiah paid an ultimate price so this person could have real life, which means the believer should love their life, not like self-exaltive, but you know, like, wow, he died for my life so that I could live for him and all that. And so... We appreciate what he's done, and so we value our life because we want our life to glorify him. You know, so it, it, I can't quite wrap my mind around how a Christian could kill themselves. Uh, you know, we have an enemy, and he's powerful, but are we going to go on to say that someone, who, someone who's in Christ that, that is screwed up for a moment and they do the, the unthinkable thing, a stupid, foolish thing, that they're not going to be with Christ? No, I don't, I don't think that we can claim that. I, I don't think that we can. I do believe that there are, there's probably more, but I think that there's really two forms of suicide that exist. We, we know the physical. We're familiar with that. Uh, we're all familiar with the horrific act uh, of one who takes their own physical life out of guilt, shame, hopelessness, despair, or, or whatever it is. And some people, uh, you see on the cop shows all the time, a guy kills a bunch of people and you know, he goes off and kills himself because he thinks that's going to be better for him. And it's like, oh, well, okay. It would be better for you to spend the rest of your life rotting in prison than to go to hell. Um, but we, we're familiar with the, the physical. We don't have to, to go into that. We've just seen it in the Scripture. But what about the, the second form, which I, which I think there is one that exists to some degree, and that would be spiritual suicide. I, I get it. The Bible's very, very clear about the condition of those that are outside of Christ. It basically says that they're dead. They're spiritually dead. And if someone is spiritually dead, how can they commit spiritual suicide? They really can't in a literal sense. Uh, in, in fact, you know, Jesus himself proclaimed and came to give life, and that proves that people are dead in sin spiritually. The Bible teaches that. I mean, we don't have any ability whatsoever in our fallen will to embrace Christ, nor do we want to. And so we are dead, essentially. So how can one commit spiritual suicide if they're already dead? They really can't, as I said. And yet, and here's where it gets tricky, and yet, even though God is completely sovereign over salvation, there isn't anyone in here that would say, oh, you know, salvation, no, it's not entirely him. Yeah, I think we all believe that. He is completely sovereign. And yet, man still has a responsibility to respond to the gospel 
in repentance and faith. And for those of us that are reformed, I'll say even the elect have to do that. Because I'm as reformed as you can be. But no one gets saved apart from the gospel. No one. To teach otherwise is to leave the gospel. Every person, in order to be saved, must respond to the gospel through repentance and faith. Even those that were chosen before the creation of the world. No one gets saved apart from the gospel. Even the Old Testament saints got saved based on their faith in the coming Messiah, Emmanuel. So, in light of that, in light of the reality and fact that people must respond to the gospel, when they hear the gospel and reject it, in a way they're committing spiritual suicide. It's as if they're holding a spiritual gun to their head. And the moment that they breathe breathe their last breath apart from Christ, that gun goes off. And they are doomed to the perils of hell for all eternity. And so, in a way, when the gospel is proclaimed for a person to listen and to reject and to walk away is a form of spiritual suicide. Do you see how that works? It's like they hold it right to their head. And they just keep it there, and it's always there. And it's only a matter of time before it goes off. And as a church, we don't want people to perish apart from Christ. And that's why we're always about the gospel and always proclaiming the gospel and getting it out there. Because we don't want anyone to perish. We want to see the people that we come across and our families and our neighbors and these people saved. We want them to be included in the family of God, in the body of Christ, in the fellowship. But in a way, when you hear that gospel proclaimed and you reject it and you say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that garbage, that's junk, that's stupid, I'm going to live for myself, I'm going to do what I want to do, you're holding a gun to your head. The willful rejection of Jesus Christ of the gospel is equivalent to holding a spiritual gun to your head. If you pass away... And life is a vapor, is it not? It goes so quickly for some, maybe for some of us. Apart from Christ, bang, you're doomed. It's over. Now, in the last hundred years or so, probably longer than that, the church has done a spectacular job of cheapening the gospel by making it more palatable and by downplaying hell. Any one of you who's attended church for any measure of time knows that salvation is more about improving someone's life. I mean, this is what we're always being bombarded with from the pulpit now. If you want joy, believe. If you want all these things, and all of those things are wonderful bennies in the salvation of Jesus Christ, but the church at the same time, and I think inadvertently, has downplayed The gospel has cheapened it, and Bonhoeffer wrote a spectacular book about the cheapening of God's grace um, called The Cost of Discipleship. You ought to pick it up. It's a phenomenal read. But the scriptures do not ever downplay hell. Never. They never do. The Bible is very, very serious about spiritual suicide, very, very serious about hell, very, very serious about an eternity apart from from the living God. 
Listen to how serious it is. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after hearing the gospel and receiving it, understand, or understanding it to some degree, being exposed to it, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. He's saying there's no other means. What remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And then the author says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then he, he ends with this, and it just it always jacks me up when I read this part. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. You know, Jesus actually told a parable about a man who rejected the gospel, died, and went to hell And he emphasized the guy's utter helplessness in the situation. This was a great parable that he told. This is a sobering passage to say the least. Luke 16, 19 to 28. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He says, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, why does he call him that? Not because Abraham is a God figure, but because he's the father of the nation of Israel. He says, Father Abraham, father of the Israelite nation, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in the like manner bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may pass from there to us and he said then I beg you father Abraham to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that they may so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. You see the the utter helplessness of this man who's in torment and who now realizes that there's nothing that can be done for him and he now has fear over his own family, his own brothers, who he knows who are apart from Christ, who are wicked, who are sinners, who are unregenerate. And he says, please send Lazarus to my house to warn them. And what does he say? He says, But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the rest of the word of God. Let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see this ghost, they'll repent. And he says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Passages like these make me tremble in fear. You know, the Bible doesn't downplay Hades. It doesn't downplay hell. It doesn't downplay the reality of what happens to those who reject God's gracious offer in Christ and who perish without Christ. Passages like this may be tremble in fear, and yet not for myself. Because I know I, where I stand with Christ. I know that He took my sin upon Himself and clothed me in His righteousness. I know that I belong to Him because I have received Him by faith. I tremble in fear for you and for those who are outside of Christ. Because this is what they're facing an unimaginable torment for all of eternity. And I don't want to sound like Jonathan Edwards now and try to dramatize this whole hell thing. I don't have to. The scriptures do it just fine. I don't think that there's anyone in here that, that really, including me, that really gets a hold of the gravity of what's to come for some. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know that God is the greatest artist and ulti- the ultimate creator. He is unfathomably creative, is he not? Just go look and just go dive in the ocean and look at the fish. Are we to limit how creative he is in torturing those who have betrayed him through Adam and who have flipped the bird to Jesus their entire life so that they could follow their own gods and fulfill their lusts and satisfy them? Don't they know that they were created in his image to bring him glory? Some of us are parents, and, 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 and we can't understand the gravity of this from God's level, but, but some of us have experienced what it's like to have a wayward child. I would imagine some of us here have, and how that makes a parent feel. When a kid just goes off south and they do all these things, it crushes a parent. Parents will stay up all night, every night, praying and mourning and crying and hoping that little Jimmy comes home. And yet there are billions of people who are created in the image of God who are apart from Him. And what they'll receive for their own wickedness, for their own choice, is unimaginable. The Scripture says so. Someone once said, and I I couldn't find the author of it, but someone once said the greatest decision a person will make in their life is what they do with Jesus. I used to think that was a little pretentious and shallow. And I was a fool to think that because that is the greatest thing that a person will ever face. That is the greatest decision that an individual 
will ever make. I believe it to be true. And so I have to ask you, what have you done with Jesus? What have you decided about him? It's a very poignant question. And some of you know exactly what's taken place, and you rejoice in that. And yet there could be some here that are uncertain, who have never, never repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. You don't have to keep this here. God has graciously, graciously shared His gospel with you today, and I'm sure hundreds of other times, or maybe dozens. This can come down. It's your responsibility to embrace what Christ offers. And if you do it, glory to Him, and it's by His grace that you were able to do that. You can't do it on your own. You know, you don't have to end up like Judas. God has graciously shared His gospel, at least here today and probably other times. If you're apart from Christ, will you lay down your arms? Repent of your sin. Turn from it. And by God's power, you can do that. Will you receive the abundant life of, of joy, peace, purpose, security, grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, companionship? Oh, the companionship with Christ is unlike anything. And that's what's offered. An eternity with Him in His glorious presence. The Lord's arm is never too short to save and His ear is ever turned to those who cry out for mercy and grace. Always. And so we cry out to Him. Recognize your sin and cry for mercy. Plead before His throne of grace and He will receive you. He will. He doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him like that. He'll receive you just as you are, too. You don't have to clean yourself up before you go before him. So often that's what we believe. Well, I just got to make a few more adjustments in my life, and then I'll be ready to receive Christ. That's Satan. <laughs> the day of salvation is... Today, now is the favorable time, it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Now, I rejoice that so many of you do belong to Christ, but there's always someone present who, who doesn't, who's like Judas. And I pray that you would believe, that you would trust. And that's one of the reasons why we're here as a church and we gather to put the gospel out there. Let's look at 20. We can close it out. For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. As I've already noticed, Judas's basically his tortured life and death did fulfill Old Testament prophecy. As Peter indicates, Judas's treachery and betrayal, his death and his replacement were foretold by King David in the Psalms. 
Psalm 55, uh, 12 to 15 clearly predicts betrayal. Psalm 69, 25 is the source of the prediction of Judas's removal of office. And Psalm 109, verse 8 promises his replacement. All of those quotes are, that Peter gives are in context uh, that point to the time of Messiah's death. And the Holy Spirit clearly affirms that they speak of Judas, as Luke has said. Peter used the most compelling proof, Scripture, to reassure his hearers that Judas's defection and their choice of replacement were all a part of God's plan. Isn't that wonderful? That God had it all sorted out and that he used it all for his glory and that he used it to bring salvation to many sons, to bring many sons to glory. It's a wonderful thing that he's done in spite of the tragedy of that individual.